What's up, people? Swizz here. My fault that we're late. I couldn't figure out technology. It's typical of me. But this is Market Call. It's Q10. That means August 10th. I'm Guy Adami, joined by Dan Nathan. In just a minute or so, Tom Sosnoff, CEO of Tasty Trade, will join us. And Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting. Wednesdays are jam-packed. Today's episode brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. Tasty Trade, empowering the individual investor through content, technology, and know-how, Dan. And of course, we're powered by open exchange. The market is powered by a seemingly cool inflation number. Yeah, it is. Well, there you go. We talked about this a little bit yesterday. I think you know all of us could have agreed that the likelihood of a hotter number was not great, but the magnitude in which maybe the CPI, you know, kind of month over month decelerated, right, or year over year, however you're looking at it, whatever you want to look at the core or whatever. I mean, again, I had no idea what the market was going to do. You thought if we had a cooler number, we would probably see. I don't know, in the S&P 500, 50 handles? Is that what you said yesterday when we were talking about it? Well, here we are. We're up 76 handles, up nearly 2% in the S&P 500. The NASDAQ's up a bit more than that. And you look at the Russell. We did hit the Russell. We talked about Carter's call on a relative basis that he made on worth charting the other day that he thinks the Russell will outperform the S&P 500. All makes sense to me. But here's the thing, guy. Okay, the S&P down 12% on the year, the NASDAQ, the NASDAQ 100 down 18%. Does that encapsulate everything that we think has gone on year to date that is likely to continue on even if we have mid single digits inflation readings, right? And we know that we still have these bottlenecks in supply chains. We know that we have a weakening consumer. We know that we have a housing market, at least on the rental front, that's pretty stingy. We know that wage inflation is still there. We had that hot jobs number on Friday. It just doesn't seem like we're out of the woods just yet, does it? I don't think so. I mean, I think that's the rhetorical question of the day. Clearly, the short answer is no. I don't think we're out of the woods at all. The market suggests otherwise. And now we're some 600-ish S&P handles from the low that we saw, I think, on June 16th or thereabouts. It's a pretty remarkable move in a, a relative short period of time with nothing really improving. I mean, we're through earnings, but we've talked about that ad nauseum. Earnings have been good, but not nearly as good to, to at least in my opinion, to yeah. represent the moves we've seen to the upside in some of these stocks. And yeah, okay, inflation came in cool. Guess what? Still 8.5%. Long way to 2%, folks. So Again, people will say this gives the Fed pause, reason to pivot, reason to slow down. Personally, I don't see it because it's still an extraordinary number. You know, if last month had not had a 9.1 handle, maybe had an 8.7 handle, I think we'd have a much different conversation in terms of the magnitude of the drop of where we are now. It's all relative, I guess, but you're still talking about an 8.5% inflation rate. And that, to me, is still problematic. Yeah, no doubt about it. I thought this tweet from Jim Bianco, Bianco Research, was pretty interesting, Guy. I thought you'd have some thoughts on it here. With the S&P back above 4,200, it's now at the same level it was on March 15th, the day before the Fed hiked the Fed funds rate off of zero to start this rate hiking campaign. Is this what the Fed wants? 10-year, 100 basis points higher over the same period. Two-year, up 150 basis points. I mean, that is what they wanted, if you think about it. I mean, the stock market, you know, again, we were talking about asset bubbles and the idea of kind of tamping them down. We know that when rates go higher, and that's what they effectively said they were going to do, the fact that the S&P is at that same point where it was on March 15th is pretty remarkable here. How How do you think about this juxtaposition here? No, I think, listen, 
if I'm answering the question that Jim is asking, the Fed didn't want the market to collapse. I don't think they wanted the market to go up in a precipitous fashion, but I think they wanted things to be stable. And quite frankly, I mean, other than that huge downdraft in the middle of June, that's pretty much what we've seen. So I guess in that regard, they got what they want. I think they're probably concerned about a twos tens that is inverted to the tune of about 50 basis points, but maybe that'll sort itself out as well. I think there are a lot of people that will come out over the next week or so and say, the Fed is threading this needle. Soft landing is going to happen. I am not one of these people, despite the fact that the market looks pretty good today. Yeah, no, I guess the point, you know, you talk now the 210 is at 40 basis points because you see what's happened today on the two year. And then we just throw this, I saw this this up on, you know, usually we'll look at the CME Fed Watch tool, but this was on CNBC. So this would be for CPI in yellow and gray after CPI. And you see what happened here for that September meeting here. The likelihood when we were talking yesterday at this time was a, a stronger likelihood of a 70 basis point, 75 basis point hike in September. Now it looks more likely to be 50 here. What does the Fed do between now and Jackson Hole on August 25th? Because that's really the next focus here. Does the messaging change about the pace of rate hikes? No, I don't think they need to do anything. I think to open their mouths now would be a mistake. They let the market do the talking for them, I would think. And things are sort of, I believe that things are transpiring the way they want them to. So any dialogue they would submit at this point, I think would be foolish unless the market seems to be sending another story, sending another narrative in terms of this Fed is going to pivot, this Fed is going to back off, blah, blah, blah. If that's the case, then maybe they have to come out and tamp things down a bit because I still think they're concerned about an overheated housing market, which really hasn't cooled off all that much, although it has. So wage inflation is still on the rise. There's still a lot of things to be concerned about if I were a Fed official. But again, the market's telling a much different story now. Through the lens of the market, they're doing everything right. Through other lenses, there's still some problems out there. All right, let's look at the S&P 500 really quickly, the SPX here, and that you see that declining 200-day moving average. If we were to get through through that resistance level we're at, we're at 4,200, we get to 4,330. That's almost about a 20% rise off of those lows, Guy, from mid-June or so. And again, this goes back to that comment that Rosie made. I mean, he's looking back at historical data to be really out of the woods and what you would think is a bear market rally. You probably need 25% plus and then some underperforming groups to start to show relative strength. Take on the S&P 500 here, because again, to me, it looks a bit extended. And given the fact that we do have a lot of economic headwinds, I don't think earnings for the S&P 500 have come down enough, given the fact that we are going to have continued kind of, I think, margin pressure. You know, we talk about peak this, peak that. We had peak margins in the cycle here, and I don't think the S&P 500 earnings can encapsulate that just yet. Where would you expect to be a level of a rollover in the S&P. Yeah, well, I thought it would be right where we are now. I mean, again, we had talked about the overshoot to 4,200. Here we are. You look at this chart. It suggests that maybe we have room to the moving average. I don't know if we're going to get there. You look at this chart, though, and it's a very distinct downward trend line from the December high. You connect it again in basically April, June. And your third point is effectively where we are now. So I still think we're in a bit of a declining trend line, and I still think we're going to exhaust ourselves here. And you're probably going to have a pretty significant volume day to the upside, which is something you typically don't see. I think Carter would probably agree with me when he comes on, and I'm sure Tom has some thoughts on this as well. But I think the market exhausts itself. And if you listen to some of the commentary, I mean, just listen to Micron, listen to NVIDIA. I mean, you you can rattle off the companies 
that are warning. I mean, those warnings yeah. don't go away because the market goes up. Just oh, you got to keep that in mind. I think that's a great point. What a difference a day makes. If you look at those two massive downgrades, the revenue guidance from NVIDIA and what Micron had to say, those are not one quarter fixes, especially for companies that are that integrated into like supply chains mm -hmm. and just the kind of inputs in so many different industries. Really quickly, before we get to Tom, look at the, Na the NASDAQ 100, the NDX here. It is above that early May breakdown level. And you re probably recall this. I mentioned it on a market call many times. In the spring, my trade was Qs and twos. I was buying QQQ and then something that represented buying treasuries, yields going lower. I wanted to fade that. I'm out of both of those, okay? As of yesterday, I'm out of the Qs. I'm out of the rate thing here. And to me, I just think we've gone too far too fast. I will definitely look to kind of add into the Qs. I don't really have a view on treasuries anymore now that we've had that yield come in guy but this thing above that early may breakdown level maybe i'm out too early in the qqq here because it looks like it could have a straight shot up to about fourteen thousand. that is that declining 200 day moving average you know but you know and i know you're never going to sell the top you're never going to buy the low this has been a great trade does it overshoot a little bit yeah but you can't i mean you know as a trader you can't yeah. look back you can't play that game because it's extraordinarily difficult to do and it be, you're just being too hard on yourself so i think it's been a great trade and again this is a very similar chart to the S&P. This is this downward trend since, again, mid to late November. You can connect the dots and see. Do we get up to that moving average? I don't think we do. I think we exhaust ourselves here. That's just my view. But can we bring in Tom? Because he's been waiting patiently in the queue. Is that how they say it in London, in the queue? Yeah, in the queue. What's up, Tom? How are you, you stud? Hello. Hello, boys. How are first, you, Tom? First of all, I have to give you kudos. Last week, Dan was not here. We talked about the VIX, and you still thought volatility was too high, and that's when I think the VIX had a 23 handle or so. Here today, Prince a 19 handle, so you're spot on in that. Before we get into it, what are your thoughts? Now, is this an interesting level that if you were so inclined to buy volatility, it makes sense at these levels? Zero chance. <laughs> I mean, please, please elaborate on that zero chance, sir. <laughs> Well, first of all, even if you're bearish, you don't buy volatility here because it's a horrible risk reward. So the only time you ever buy volatility is never. But never could be like 9% VIX or 11% VIX. You got a better chance, you know, at least at those levels. But statistically speaking, there is no time throughout history that's predictable to buy volatility. So you never buy it. You could be bearish. You just mm -hmm. don't buy vol. Now, the other side to that is, you know, is this a level here where you want to get short? Well, it's it's better than it was before, but the market looks pretty good today. You know, of course, I mean, it's easy to say when spoos are up 80, but but there are some factors today that I kind of like. I like vol breaking down. I like the dollar finally breaking down. I like the yield curve finally expanding. There are some things. I mean, I agree with you on the semis and things like that. I don't think those stocks are going anywhere. But I also think that until there's outlier risk in the market as priced by SKU, there's very little downside risk right here. And, I, and I'm a perma bear, and I see very little. Well, mm -hmm. you know, you know, what, you know what's interesting about that, and Tom, you know, I've followed you, and you and I have chatted markets. I, I think for sure. about ten years or so, and and I love your take on vol because there's so many narratives out there about how to buy options, right? To to, to kind of take advantage of this period or that period, and you have consistently, whether it's been a bear market, whether it's been a crash, you look to play directionally through short vol strategies because if you get the direction right, ultimately you're going to get the vol crush. Is that how 
how you think about it on most occasions here because again i think there's these narratives out there that you know when vols down here you gotta buy it because it's too cheap you know that sort of thing just explain to our listeners a little bit right now because again we are in august we don't have a fed meeting in a week and a half or so we have this kind of thing that will be the you know it'll be everybody's talking about jackson hole and it's not likely to do the thing that some people hope it's going to do and in some ways if you have a continued grind higher in the markets here you're going to have vol go lower than a lot of people think it could well short vol short delta is obviously a you know it's a natural hedge so if you're wrong on delta you'll be right on vol the other side to it is you know if you decide you want to get for whatever reason if you are long and the market goes higher and you're also short vol obviously you're going to get double whammy but the problem is that that only happens about 20 or 25% of the time historically so you're just playing it's more like you're playing like nobody has any theoretical edge like there is no there is no such thing as you know person a dan or guy or tom have any advantage over none of us have any advantage over one another in in the sense of what we know is going to happen next the only thing that we that i think that's that some of us have is at least the ability to understand what works with something else meaning like what kind of mechanics make the most sense as opposed to what's going to happen next so in a sense you know i don't know i don't have any idea what's going to happen but i set my positions up based on what happens most of the time i mean isn't that really only what all we can do Mm mm-hmm and that leads me to a couple things. So I want to take a look at this, not tweet, actually it is a tweet by David Rosenberg talking about a true bottom can't be made effectively until you see a substantial move to the upside in banks. So just let's sort of shelve that for yeah, a second. That I, don't, I don't buy that at all. No, I know, and I, and I want to talk about that, but there's something else I want to talk about. It's yeah. important because a lot of people will say to me when we speak, Dan and I, you know, General Electric's been so good to me, Citibank, JP Morgan, Disney, those types of things. And my response typically is they don't know you exist. And you you and Tony Batts had an interesting conversation about product indifference, being sort of agnostic about products. Can you sort of speak to that? Because I think it's really important for yeah. people to understand. So, so if you go back when a lot of us started our career and, and when we started this business, we were very one-dimensional with respect to trading. Like I spent 20 years on, on for the SIBO trading one product, literally one product. And I think most traders throughout the years would either trade one product or one sector or one type of product, like you were a stock trader, you were an option trader, you're a futures trader, whatever it is, you were specifically a one trick pony. And we all were by the nature of the technology we had and access to product. In 2022, with the technology we have today, there is no reason, virtually every strategy in every product works the exact same way because of pricing efficiency. Yeah, I mean, the beautiful thing about markets are that they are the most efficiently priced liquid vehicle in the world for strategy. So it doesn't matter what underlying you use. They're all the same. So it really just matters which one fits whatever your subjective outlook is. Mm -hmm. Whatever you think is going to happen, that's the one you can play based on price extreme. It could be based on fundamentals. It could be based on technicals. It could be based on cyclical analysis. It could just be based on just you know pure quantitative stuff. I, it doesn't make any difference to me. But the nature of trading in 2022 and markets in 2022 is if you're not product indifferent, I don't believe you can be successful because product indifference allows you to be truly diversified, both strategically and by product. And I think that is really the key 
of what we can do today. I mean, that's yeah. the beauty of today's technology. And that's the beauty of today's markets. Why would you trade anything that's not liquid? And why would you trade anything that you don't feel is is opportunistic? Yeah, no, no doubt about that. I, that that makes um, perfect sense, and I think you know that guy and I have traded lots of different products. And 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 again, you know, expressing views in the market, you take a view that it usually starts and stops with vol. We often have kind of directional inputs here. One of the things I thought was interesting though about this Rosie comment, it was he was talking about a substantial move higher in the S and P five hundred, but then relative strength in the banks. And the banks, I, I'm just curious if you can give us a sense of how you're thinking about financials or financial related, you know, stocks, if you will because I look at this JP Morgan chart and, you know, for the better part of this year, the bank stocks, major U.S. banks had been leading to the downside. The underperformance, I think, was really notable. And it was really, you know, Guy used this expression on many occasions that the sell-off for most of the year was very orderly, right? And even if you look at this JP Morgan chart, but what I find really interesting is that today, on a day that I think a lot of people are saying inflation peaked, that was it in June, right? That here you now have this stock gapping above this downtrend that had been in place since June. And then I just want to show another chart, like a PayPal. I bought this stock. I started buying it about a couple months ago. This stock was down 80% at its lows. It really feels like it's trying to put a bottom in here. So when you, I know you don't care about charts and technicals, that sort of thing, but just piecing together the mosaic of the underperformance of some of these banks and then also these high-flying fintechs, what does that say to you about where we are with the S&P now only down 12% on the year? Well, I actually, I mean, personally, the sector that I'm long the most, and part of the reason is because, you know, I'm the largest shareholder of our own publicly traded company, which is so that that matters to me personally. But I would say I'm long every subsector in the financial sector because I think it's one of the cheapest plays on the board. I don't think they're undervalued. So I just want to, I don't want to, I don't want to confuse the two. I don't think the financial sector is grossly undervalued right now. I do think that it is cheap relative to the rest of the market, and it's cheap relative to its own industry. See, I'm a big believer that trading volumes are very cyclical. And 2022 has been a strange year. And the first time in a long time we've ever seen higher volatility and lower trading volumes. Mm -hmm. Part of it is kind of the crypto meltdown, as you would say, and part of it's the high beta stock meltdown. But I do think when you look at these financial firms, the reason they're lower is because volumes across the board and by trading volumes don't just mean, you know, like trading volumes and commissions. It also means, you know, a lot of the investment banking side is down because there is no trading volume. So there's no SPAC business, there's no IPOs, there's no, there's very few mergers, mergers deals. I mean, there's very little deal making going on. So I love the sector. I think it's cheap relative to answer your question. And I do like the high beta stocks in this sector. So I like a lot of the, let's call them aggressive fintech stocks that I think are trading cheap relative. Dan's going to ask you about Robinhood in a sec, but I just want to take a look at the JP Morgan chart real quick, because I think this is important. This is something that Carter would point out as well. Very well-defined downtrend, seemingly breaking through that downtrend. The question is, how far can we get? I mean, it could exhaust itself north of 130, which is where we broke down from in June. And maybe that's what you're playing for. But one of the things I've been saying for a while, 
it was interesting and notable that these money setter banks were not participating in the rally. And I guess, Dan, it's a good sign that they yeah. finally are, at least for today or the last couple of days. Yeah. And I just threw that chart in there because, again, we had cited that underperformance for the better part of you know the first five months of the year or so. And I think it's notable that if we were to go in a period of outperformance, and I think Tom's point about relative value is also really important, especially as we've seen rotations out of growth into value and all the way around. Tom, I, I, I missed market call last Wednesday. I was on vacation, but I heard from a little birdie here that you like the hood, the Robin Hood here. And just so you know, I bought that today. And I'll tell you why. Guy and I were sitting on the desk on Fast Money at the NASDAQ last night about 5.30. Coinbase's results were out and they were bad. And the guidance was bad. And the stock was down about 10%. The implied move in the options market, I think, was a bit more than that. And I was just like, you know, without the CPI print, I had to assume the stock would be down. But it started firming up a little bit. And I said, if you can print a quarter in guidance like that and the sort of customer declines that they've seen and all that sort of stuff, then Robinhood, okay, which has been basing now in and around these high single digits around 10 or so for months, this thing could have a move. So I'm curious your thoughts on that. And I didn't hear what you had to say last week. But again, this thing could break out pretty easily and be up, you know, 10, 20% in no time. And you got a good trade on your hands if that's the case. Well, I like, I'm long Robinhood. In full disclosure, I'm long Robinhood. And I've been long it for a while. Probably my average price is I mean, I bought it as low as, you know, under $8, but my average is probably closer to 11. So I'm not up any money in there. I thought when it was trading at 20, 11 was cheap. When it was trading at eight, I thought 11 was expensive, of course. But I like Robinhood only because I also live in their exact same business. And I do believe that, you know, like I said before, that these volumes are cyclical. And I think when you look at what's happened to the crypto market and Robinhood's essentially, in my eyes, Robinhood's a crypto firm, and whether they want to believe it or not, they're a crypto firm. And I think they're the cheapest play. Like, I don't like Coinbase because I don't think that they're a cheap play. I think Robinhood is a cheap play. And so I like Robinhood better than Coinbase, and I'm only long Robinhood as kind of a little bit, let's call it a highly correlated crypto play. I also like the fact that, you know, Robinhood has, with a couple more upticks in interest rates, and just any kind of revival at all in stock or option trading, I think Robinhood's has, let's say, you know, 20, 30, 40% of upside with about 10% of downside. So I like Robinhood as a pot odds play more than I like it for anything else. I mean, as a competitor of Robinhood, I mean, personally, I think they stink as a firm. <laughs> as, an investor, as an investor, I like them. That's all. No, there's some optionality at these prices without question. Look, yeah, I mean, this it. stock that's could rally 40, 50% and still be in a significant downtrend. That's probably at this point what you're looking for. The other yeah. thing, we, before we let you go, Tom, and I'm not looking for in terms of the stock, but what are your thoughts about Tesla here? Obviously, we heard last night Elon Musk sold another chunk of his Tesla stock, $6.9 billion, which is a significant money ahead of this Twitter trial. Just thoughts on this whole sort of circus, for lack of a better word. I think I told you last week, I, I, I think Tesla is the single best trading vehicle of any option, a, any stock in the whole, you know, any stock that we trade, Tesla has the best markets, both, you know, the option markets are the, the tightest, the most liquid. When it splits, it's even going to be more, you know, in, in a couple of weeks, it's going to be even crazier as far as liquidity goes. So I think it's the best trading vehicle out there. High implied volatility, unbelievably tight markets. You can do anything two cents around theoretical. 
I think Tesla's a fascinating play up at this up at this 900, you know, close enough to the 900 level, because up here, any edge that you had, in any edge in the sense of like, you know, that, that the stock may be oversold or anything like that, it's all gone. Like we're back to, you know, we're back to kind of it's, mm-hmm. it's just a complete crapshoot. But with all the premium in Tesla and all the stuff that's going on, as long as Elon stays, you know, front and center of the news, I think it's the best trading vehicle. My my position in Tesla, which is it's probably my largest position, is pure short premium. I have no deltas in there at all, meaning I'm not long, I'm not short, I'm just short out of the money strangles, and I'm pretty far away. You know, so I would guess I'm probably just sitting around one standard deviation away out of the money. So yeah. we tend to live in that one standard deviation area, which means, you know, it's kind of like an expected move. That's all. Yeah. And that I, gets back to, I'm sorry, Dan, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, listen, I am directional. I am short of this thing and I was long premium to the short side. That didn't work out particularly well, but now just short via stock and this TLSQ here. I will just say this, that I think Elon Musk is in possession or will be in possession of two of the most mispriced stocks in the entire stock market. And that would be Tesla. And if he's forced to buy Twitter at the price in which he had agreed to do it at $44 billion. So I agree with you, Dan. I agree yeah. with you, but it's just, it's a t- tough way to make a living being short Tesla. I yeah, but but you know what, Tom? I started doing this at a time where I started buying things like Snap. I started buying things like Meta, PayPal, you know, Shopify. And so to me, I like I like the barbell approach to that right now. I'm out of my QQQ, as I just said earlier to me. So this is a trade I feel really comfortable with. And again, I literally think that this is the most mispriced stock in the entire stock market. And he's about to use the proceeds of selling it, okay, to buy the second most mispriced stock in the entire stock market. I, I wouldn't argue with you about, I actually agree with you yeah. on both those points. I yeah. think that's well said. And I just find it is incredibly difficult as a trader, Yeah, incredibly difficult to try to stay head above water in Tesla when you're, you know, when you're shorted because the stock, you know, it has these 40, 50 point moves that are almost indefensible unless you're short premium. Yeah. Which and that gets, sort of ties us back to what we talked about earlier, being agnostic about a lot of these things and not yeah. really, because to you, Tesla is just a trading vehicle. It's got yeah. nothing to do with the fundamentals of the company. What you think of Tesla as a company it has everything to do with how the stock trades and the premiums surrounding them. So yeah, I think that's yeah. a great lesson. You're hundred percent right guy. And, and I, and I, by the way, I can't stand Elon Musk personally, but I also drive a Tesla. It's the best car I've ever had. So <laughs> So I'm in a complete, I'm completely effed up over this whole thing because I won't, I won't drive any other car anymore than the Tesla. And yet I can't stand Elon. So your I don't world, know. Your worlds collide all in one Tesla vehicle exactly. in the middle of Chicago, Illinois. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. We'll get you back next Wednesday. Look, check out Tasty thanks, Trade. Tom. They got a lot of cool things going on. Look at the website. Join great community. We've mentioned it. I think this is now the fourth week we've had Tom on. We're obviously going to have him back every Wednesday. We really enjoy these. Thanks so much, Tom. Now time to bring in, by the way, Carter Braxton Worth, who we equally love and adore. Carter, how are you? I'm good. And how are you? Thanks for the love. Guy, the the amazingly patient Carter Braxton here. Listening with great interest. No, we we really, listen, we appreciate you coming on because, you know, you and I chatted this morning and some themes that you've kind of articulated on Market Call and, of course, on Worth Charting over the last few months, we kind of wanted to hit, it's a big macro day here, right? When you see some of the stuff going on here. So we kind of want, we wanted to hit rates. You've had a bearish view on rates. We wanted to hit, you know, we, we talked about the equities. We can get into that later. But, you know, 
know, you've had a call on gold, on Bitcoin and some of these other things. Talk to us a little bit about this because you brought along some very, very simple charts. Simple charts. Before we look at the charts, I mean, I think what, you know, there used to be that ad on TV, those who might remember, you know, channelingstock.com, buy it low, sell high, buy, you know, we know it's not easy. But what we also know is that sometimes it's right to go with trend. Something's mm -hmm. working, relative strength, momentum. And then at some point it gets too far, too fast, down or up, meaning so-called overbought or oversold. And when you see the street, and everyone should know this, the buy side, the people running the big money, they snicker at the street quite often because the street extrapolates. And we've had a lot of extrapolation and all of the extrapolation has set the high or the low for the thing in question. We can, we can look at some of these charts now, but we're seeing this across the board, asset class after asset. Once it was certain on the street that something was going to continue, we've seen the pivot. So oh look, here's 10-year yields. We hit 3.5 and it was certain on the street. These are the big bulge, right? The big prominent names that rates were going much higher. And guess what? That's at 3.5. We're now at 2.5. This is what extrapolating is all about. It's just saying, hey, it's working, so we keep going. And so what's happened is the opposite. We've dropped 100 basis points. Now that line there, it draws itself. I think we're up where it sort of fades again. I'm in the lower rates mm -hmm. camp. And where that judgment was made was when the street started extrapolating 5%, 6%, all this nonsense. And, and probably, yeah, I mean, you were spot on with that. You also were spot on with the dollar. Let's take a look at that chart because it was about a month or so ago, which literally was about, I think, three or days either side of it topping out that you thought the dollar was going to exhaust itself, trade back to the uptrend line. Not only did that happen, but now we're through it. Thoughts here? We are through it, right? And so the line helps the eye, but let's say we didn't have the line. The question is, is this just an intermediate correction dip? pullback in an uptrend. Yes, just because you've breached the line doesn't mean it has to go and collapse. But here too, when the dollar was surging like that, and this will get to gold, of course, then it was like, it's never going to stop. This is going to kill emerging markets. The dollar is king. And of course, everyone hated gold. And as soon as you see extra, and, uh, and it's important for everyone to know this, it's the sell side. It's Wall yeah. Street. Wall Street always does this. And here we have the exact, we, and before we go to the next chart, remember oil? We went from 90 to 130 and they start saying targets of $200 a barrel. Oil's yeah. in free fall. When you hear that, run the other way. And yeah. so it's the same thing here. Hey, you know, it's interesting. We had an email from a viewer and we appreciate the feedback. So please continue to have it. And I responded to it, but he was mentioning that, you know, he, he basically was suggesting that we were kind of breaking our arms, patting each other on the back of some of these calls here. And I think it's really important for transparency. His point is, unless you're going to list them all and buy prices in this and whatever, that's not really important to me. What's important to me is kind of the context in which these calls are being made and the contrast between the players. And we are the players here on our own show on Market Call right. in which, and you know, we don't always agree on these sorts of things, right? And so, like, I just think it's important to kind of get that out of the way. And so when we said at 108 in the Dixie, you were bearish, you came on here, you put it on worth charting, you set it on CNBC. It's really important here. We can't do them all here, people, but we want to hit the major, major things. Is that right? Fair, and, one, and listen, just to respond, whoever that individual is, fine. Everyone's allowed to have their opinion. Look, yeah. one could say this is cherry picking. If there's anyone out there who thinks that we don't have duds or they don't have duds. I mean, listen, swaps, we'll swap tickets. I'll sh show us your statements on E-Trade Ameritrade. We've all got our screw ups. We know this. That's elemental. It's not, it's the, the word obtuse comes to mind. It doesn't even need to be said. 
Yeah, no, fair enough. Tus was the word used in the Shawshank Redemption, if you recall. Tim Robbins said it to the warden. It basically cost him a few months in solitary (laughs) confinement. We're not going to do that to you. I will also say, Dan, just to sort of amplify, we do always, at least I try to point out, all the great calls that you both have had. And I will say flat out when I'm wrong, I'll say it about myself, you know. So, I mean, I think we're pretty fair on both sides of the coin. I'm wrong all the time. I could do an hour-long show just to shit that I'm wrong about, but that's neither here nor there. Bitcoin, Dan. No, but I, I mean, listen, again, we also reserve the right to change our minds. You know, you know what I mean? About the direction of things. And I guess if you're just going to catch it once a week, you're not going to hear some of that nuance. So we'd like to be very transparent. Let, let's just, again, I mean, gold and Bitcoin, you know, you would, you know, guy, guy has been on one side of gold. I've been on the other side of gold and it's been, you could have made money. You could have lost money. I mean, there's lots of different ways. Talk to us about this chart, because when I see this card and I see the arrows and I see the downtrend, you know, you don't have a green arrow going up. Meaning no. you think it's going to break out. You think it fails at this downtrend. Right. So the, this is the mirror image of the rate call. And just to make this point, right, so there's the consensus, well, if if the dollar's coming off, oil should be going up. Yeah. Oil's in free fall and the dollar's going down. These sort of perfect little relationships that everyone realizes, they're, they're good until they're not good. But what we do know is, you know, this move in gold is now back at a difficult level. And the point is this, it really is the main point, right? And there's no way around this for anybody. What should we base our decisions on gold now? The dollar, GDP, PMI, CPI, or should we use this friggin' chart? That's all we've got. <laughs> it's all we've got. It's a big move to a difficult level. Write some calls, trim your gold position. That's all. All right. Lastly, Bitcoin. You've been saying you called that breakdown. I think it was above you know thirty thousand at the time. We got to below twenty thousand. It seems to be trying to make a move back to that downtrend. I, I don't think it acts particularly well. I'll be very honest with you. I think Guy's been saying this now for months. The thing that turns Bitcoin is a Fed pivot, right? Going back to some sort of easy monetary policy. Talk to me a little bit about this chart because you do have a green arrow to that do. downtrend. But would you fade it there? Right. Whereas the other things have all gone to the trend line in question, this one has yet to accomplish the full achievement or full act, right? And so what I would just say is that I think there's a bit of upside here. And interestingly, that trend line comes into play exactly where those May lows are. And so a little bit more, and then I would I would fade it. All right. Fair yeah, enough. look, that's what I think. Bitcoin, to me, if the Fed does pivot or if you think somehow this Fed is on pause, I mean, that to me is a green light for Bitcoin. We've been saying it for a while. And again, it doesn't it's not coincidence that Bitcoin topped out when the Fed decided inflation was a problem. And I don't think it's coincidental that it's rattling now that people somehow think this Fed is going to pivot off an eight and a half percent CPI print. But we shall see. But that's it. For market call, my goodness, it was a long one. But you know what? Wednesdays are chock full of things. It's like the coffee, Dan. I want to thank Tom Sosnoff, obviously. Thank you, Carter Braxtonworth. I don't know what those bells are. Sorry, it's I got like, bells and whistles. You know, it's trades going off. Hairspray or whatever it was with John Travolta. By the way, and the passing of Olivia Newton-John, I will tell you, big fan of Olivia Newton-John. Yeah. She fought bravely. Good for her. By the way, thanks to our sponsors, FactSet. Tasty trade. We are powered by Open Exchange. We'll be back tomorrow with EY from SoFi at 1 p.m. See you guys later. See you later, guys. Thanks, Carter.